Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. So this morning, um, we are about two weeks away from sending Michael, Shannon, and Julie Wetker uh, back to Africa. And so we've been sharing week-to-week stories um, of their first trip to Africa and ways that they are looking forward to engaging um, the village in Gadal in Senegal. And uh, one of those stories uh, has to do with uh, this man here on your right. Um, his name is Emma. Um, and then uh, the lady on his left there is his wife. Um, and we, we can't remember his wife's name. Um, but So it's Emma and his wife. And Emma is one of the co-pastors um, at the village in Senegal in Gadal. Um, and he is in charge of the community garden. Um, and his father in law, yeah, his father was uh, Catholic and was pretty kind of wealthy and donated the land to the church so that the church could build the church building and also a community health center. Um, this village in Goodell is quickly, um, because of Emma's presence um, and the way that he can make food and sustain the village, they're quickly becoming kind of this cultural and economic hub um, for the surrounding villages, um, so much so that the surrounding villages are starting to take notice of what. God is doing in Gadal, and that they've also started to take notice that God is moving in Gadal. And so his wife there, um, he did not meet his wife until about two to three years ago. And the way that she met uh, Emma was that her mom knew that they, that they were Christians and that, that God had healed people um, in their church through prayer. And so she was really sick, um, Emma's wife was, and her mom knew that God was moving in Goodell, and so uh, they took the trip to Goodell, and they had a number of healing services and prayer services um, over her, and eventually God healed her, and she got better. Uh, but they took her to doctors, and doctors were like, we don't know what's wrong, we can't help you. Um, but God miraculously healed her, and in that, she met Emma, and uh, they got married. And actually, on the very last day, when they were flying out, Emma came running up to Shannon and was like, my wife just gave birth to a daughter because they don't know. They don't know if it's a son or a daughter until it's born, right? Like they don't have that luxury that we have. And he's just like ecstatic, like I, I have a daughter. And Shannon was able to share with him, he's like, I have daughters. And he's like, and it's such a joy to be a father of daughters. And so Shannon and Julie and Michael, they're all looking forward to going back and meeting this daughter um, of Emma's. And she'll be running around as like a one-year-old. And so uh, we just want to share those stories and so that you can be praying uh, that God would continue to grow in Emma as he's one of the pastors there, that he'd be able to use Emma uh, to be able to continue to grow kind of his, the agricultural uh, means that they have there and also be able to share that wisdom and knowledge with the, the surrounding villages. And as he does that, also share Christ um, because Senegal is about 99% Muslim, um, but they're a peaceful Muslim nation. Like they, they are one of the mo- few Muslim nations where... Um, actually like conflict um, is like the highest value and so they're in a place where like it's better to lie to avoid conflict than it is to like tell the truth and have conflict and so they've they've not had terrorist attacks they've not had much conflict but at the same time it's really hard to share and experience genuine faith because everyone's like yeah like whatever you believe I believe too for this moment um, because we don't want to be in conflict with one another Um, so we just want to be praying for them, and we want to be praying for uh, the group that's heading to Senegal in two weeks. Um, it's coming up quick. So uh, I want to spend some time just praying for them um, as we head into kind of the message this morning. So let's pray. 
Uh, dear God, we thank you for this day. And we thank you for stories like Emma and his wife. We thank you that you healed her. We thank you that she came to know you um, through your power and through your grace. God, we thank you for the ways that you're moving in Gadal and the way that they are just kind of this, the spiritual and cultural hub um, in the region that you have planted them in. And God, we pray that as we partner with them, as we are able to provide resource and relationships with them, that they would be able to take the gospel and grow it among the, the villages that are around them and that they can start other self-sustaining villages and that um, other villages can come to know you through your power and through your grace and through your Holy Spirit, God. And God, we pray for the group that's preparing to leave. We pray for Julie right now. Um, we pray for her as she's um, about to be with her dad as uh, he goes uh, into surgery. Uh, we pray that you would be with him and guide him through that uh, tomorrow. God, we pray for Shannon and we pray for Michael as they also prepare their hearts and prepare their families to be gone for two weeks. We pray that they get uh, just some high-touch time with their families. But God, we also pray that you would protect them um, on their trip from any type of sickness or, or, or any type of just, um, yeah, just danger on the way. God, we just pray that you'd be over them, that you'd lead them and guide them. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to, to see you move across the world. We love you and we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. So, yeah, the last announcement I have is that next week we'll be meeting um, at Park Street for a combined gathering. Um, it's going to be kind of a celebration service, just celebrating the generosity that God has had um, over Damascus Road over this past year. Um, for the first time in Damascus Road, history, we were able to meet our giving goal. And so our giving goal is higher than our budgeted goal, like higher than expenses, because we want to be wise and we want to be able to, to save and we want to be able to cover expenses as things come up. And so last year, God and his generosity allowed us to hit our giving goal. And that's worth celebrating. And so we want to celebrate that together um, because God is generous and we want to re continue to grow in generosity. Um, and so we're celebrating that next week just together because it just feels better to celebrate as one body together. And so we hope you guys can make it out to that. Now this morning, we're going to continue in our value series that we started last week. And so this value series is called We Will. And this isn't just like a, the like five values of Damascus Road. That's not what this is. This isn't like the five stated values. This is just some values that we kind of like sat down and were like, what does it mean to be the church? What does it mean to be the body of Christ in Madison and in our context and just in general, and so these are just some core values that we want to be known by, but they're not like stated values. So if you're like sitting here trying to memorize what these values are, like they're not memorized values, but they're values that we just believe that God has called us to as his people to walk out and to be known by. And so last week we talked about valuing life, that we are called to value life, and we want to be known for valuing life at all stages of life, beginning with <laughs> conception all the way through uh, death, and that life is valuable, um, and that life is worth preserving, and that, um, that, and I would even go on to say that life, <laughs> to be kind of this pro-life or to value life is that it's not just to say, oh, we want to keep people alive, or that we want to see babies born, but like we want to see life flourish, that we want to see people flourishing in life and experiencing the joy of life that comes through knowing Christ ultimately, and so that's kind of what we mean when we say that we value life. And so we're going to fight for life. We're going to fight against injustices. We're going to fight against oppression. We want to fight against those things that steal away from life and steal away from the flourishing of life that's in our world. And we know just reading the news, we know just by participating in the world that those 
<laughs> those things of evil and oppression and of sucking away the flourishing of life are rampant in our world. And so what we want to do as a church and as individuals is walk out a life that exemplifies what it is to value and care well for others. And so I think it's one thing to say that we value life. And today our second value that we're going to state or kind of dive into is, is tagged right onto the end of valuing life. Because I think it's one thing to say, yep, we value life and we're going to fight against injustice and we're going to fight against oppression. We're going to stand for righteousness. And those are all good things. But the, I think the way that, that we add action to that is by saying not only do we value life, but we also love others. And to love someone requires some form of action. Because I think a lot of times we love the idea of getting behind kind of the rally call to say, we value life. But to say that we love others, that we see people as individuals, as handcrafted in the image of God, like that, that takes it just one more step to say that I am called to love the people that God has put me around. I was talking with Rebecca, and she's like, you know, a lot of people say that they get closest to God when they go out in nature, that they're just like, I just love being in nature, and I love being away from people, and like, that's just kind of where I recharge, and I think many of us in this body would agree with that, be like, yeah, that's, that's totally where I recharge, and she's like, but you know what? She's like, people are God's creation too, and like, with that, I was like, mind blown, right, for a second, because I'm with her, I'm with you guys, I'm like, yeah, like, get me out into the woods, let's reflect, let's be around nature. She's like, being around people is also being around God's creation and God's nature. And, I was, and that really transformed the way that I think about, and I'm even an extrovert who gets charged up on people, but I, very rarely do I think of like, oh yeah, I can be worshiping, I can be reflecting, I can be standing in awe of the creation that is the other bodies around me. Because in reality, the other bodies around me are frustrating, annoying, they're kind of a drag, you know? I mean, like, they're disappointing. I'm not talking about you guys. I'm just talking about in general, right? I mean, like, we instantly go to these places where it's just like, man, people suck. <laughs> but the reality is to view them through the eyes of God and to value life is, is to then also take this call of to love others and to have this love for other people. I was reading... Um, kind of this, uh, it got familiar with Penn and Teller. Penn and Teller, there's this magician act. And so uh, there's this, so Penn, the Penn side of Penn and Teller, his name is Penn Gillette. Um, he's an atheist. But he had a Christian come up to him after his show one time with a Bible with a note. And he's like, hey, Penn, he's like, I just want you to have this Bible. He's like, I wrote a note in for you. Just so you know, I'm a sane person. I'm a businessman. Like, I'm reputable in my community. Like, don't think that I'm crazy, but I just want you to have this. He's like, okay, okay, I'll take you at your word. I'll, I'll take this Bible. Later, reflecting on it, he was moved. He was moved, and this is what he says. He says, this guy was genuine, and he says, that, he says this. He says, I have no respect for people who do not proselytize. He says, if you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell for eternal life, I question if you truly believe in it if you're not willing to tell others about it. I was like, man, Penn, that's, that's a bold statement. You know, he's saying, ultimately, to love others, if we're Christians, that we should be going out and we should be telling others about the kingdom of God. He continues to say, he, like, illustrates this point further by saying, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? 
And with that, I'm like, amen, Penn. Amen. Like, I, I hear you. But man, it's, it's tough. It's hard. There's all these social things. And, and he goes on further. He says, if I believed that beyond a shadow of a doubt that there was a truck coming at you and you stood there in denial saying, nope, I don't believe it. Nope, I don't believe it. But I saw this truck coming. He's like, there comes a point where I just tackle you. And I tackle you out of the way. He's like, now I don't believe in God. He's like, I don't believe in any of this stuff. He's like, but I have deep respect for that man because that man was loving me. And he was doing the thing that he felt that he was called to do. He's like, so he's a good, good guy. He's like, still don't believe in a God. But he's like, at least the guy was doing what he was called to do by his faith. And he's like, and that was at least somewhat compelling. And so when we talk about valuing life and we talk about loving others, there's this missional component that says that we have to go out there and we eventually have to start tackling people out of the way. Now the thing is that we've seen a lot of people tackle hard and tackle wrong and do a lot of damage in their tackling to where they're like, yeah, thanks for tackling, but no thanks. I'd rather got hit by the truck. I mean, you know what I'm talking about, right? And so (laughs) what I think we have to do is we have to start living in a way that's intentional about seeing others and maximizing or seizing opportunities and understanding that mission, this missional movement that God has called his people towards, begins with you and me, that it begins with us. When Jesus is with his disciples and he's teaching them, in chapter 5 of Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount, he sets them down and he calls them two things. He says, you guys are salt and you guys are light. Now, this is a very common metaphor that we have in our faith. Honestly, it's so common that for a long time, up until the sermon even, and I've even taught on salt and light, but I really haven't understood it. I'm just like, salt and light, salt and light. We use it all the time. Like, just throw some salt and some light on it, and you're good. Like, and I'm just like, I don't even know what that means. I don't even know what that means. So I dug into this idea of salt and light and tried to look back at like what Jesus might have meant when he said to live as salt and light, because I believe that Jesus, as our as God and as our teacher, like is on to something here, and we're just we're just missing it. Maybe I'm just missing it. Maybe you know what it is to be salt and light to the world. But there's a lot of times where I'm just like, yeah, go go and do that thing that we that we clichély say, but we don't really know what it's about. And so, <laughs> the first thing I want to look at is salt. Like, what does it mean to be salt? And salt has three properties. The first one is that in the ancient world, it was seen to be the purest substance. One, because it was white, and two, because it like, preserved things. It had this antiseptic thing. That's kind of the second value. Is that, so it's pure, it preserves, and finally, it adds flavor. It adds flavor to meat. It adds flavor to our food, and it is good. I mean, if it's something's lacking flavor, especially meat, you throw some salt on there, and it tastes incredible. And so the first thing is that salt is just pure. And so I believe that when Jesus says, hey, go live as salt to the world, he's saying, hey, go live pure lives. It's kind of this character thing. And for some reason, I've always seen salt as this like outward movement thing, but it's more about being inward movement. It's more about like, who am I on the inside and what's God doing inside of me? And so I believe that when God says, hey, be salt, he's talking about live in a place where I have purified you. Live with a high ethic. Live a life that is above reproach. And so we say, okay, God, I'm going to go, and I'm going to go enter into this world. I'm going to try and and live according to your word and according to your spirit, and let you lead me 
to this place of the purity. And we were talking, I was just talking with Jonathan and Sylvia this morning about how the good things that we do in our lives are led by God. That is God's spirit within us that leads us to this pure life. And so we ask for more of that, that we would live this kind of salty life that is full of purity. The second place is that salt preserves. It has this antiseptic kind of capacity to it. You'd salt meat, you'd salt different things so that it wouldn't rot. And salt was incredibly valuable in the ancient world because of that fact. I mean, they lived in a world not like ours where you could throw it in the refrigerator or, you know, just kill something and just, like, preserve it, vacuum seal it, throw it in the freezer. Like, you either had to eat it now or you had to find some way of preserving it, whether it was smoking it, drying it, or salting it. And salting it was one of the ways that they would preserve rot from happening. And we live in a world of death and decay and rot all around us. Like we talked about at the beginning of this message, like, we just turn on the news, we just look around, there's oppression, there's violence, there are things that are stealing away (laughs) at life every second of every day. And that is kind of the rot, and we've been called to go and seek righteousness and to set captives free and to name the oppression and to seek justice, and that is part of living as the salt, as this preservation. So we live pure, but we also know that we are safe and that we are secure and that we are preserved in the love and grace of Jesus Christ so that we can go boldly into our world that is full of rot, knowing that that rot isn't going to touch us. I mean, I just think of two pieces of meat, one that's been salted, one that's been not, and they're sitting together on two plates. One's rotting and one's being preserved. And one eventually gets thrown away and one is eventually saved and enjoyed. And like that's, that's kind of what we're called to do as these people of salt, that we are to have this kind of preserving mentality, this kind of preserved spirit as we go out into the world. The third one is that salt brings flavor. Salt brings flavor. And so there's a part of the Christian life that should just exude peace and should exude joy. Peace because we've received the peace that Christ has given us. So I love the verse in Romans that says that God has made peace with us, with his people, that God is at peace with us. I think that we don't rest in that truth enough because we look at the world and everything that's going crazy and sideways and upside down around us and we say, man, I'm not at peace. Everything seems out of control. When I think about anxiety and the nature of anxiety, anxiety generally comes from an imagination of the future where there is no God. And so anytime you find yourself anxious or when I find myself anxious, a lot of times it's where I'm imagining the future and just God's not present. It's all on me. And I'm wondering if I'm making people happy, if I'm meeting expectations, if all of these things, and I get really anxious. But as soon as I enter God into that future, into that imagination, and say, okay, I'm at peace with God, God's at peace with me, God's got this, that anxiety starts to go away, and I'm able to breathe that out. So we need to live as a people of peace. A people of peace in our world, a people of peace just that rests in general, and the peace of Christ. And then from that place, live as, as, as people of joy. Live as just a, as people of joy where that just exudes in conversations, I mean, and, and it affects others. Earlier this week, I was with Jonathan, and uh, he was serving in student ministry, and I was just like, Jonathan, there's just this joy that's coming out of you that's, like, making me happy and excited. And I didn't even know what Jonathan was, like, jazzed about or, like, full of joy. It was just kind of, like, beaming from him, and I was blessed by that. I was just like, man, I'm, 
It's been a hard week. I'm tired. It's the end of my week. It's Thursday night. It's 9 o'clock. People were staying late. Like, people were having this party. I'm just like, I want to go to bed. I want to lock up church. I want to kick you out. And, uh, but Jonathan's there just, like, beaming with joy. And I'm like, all right, I can be full of joy in this moment, too. It doesn't have to be about me. And so to live as the saltiness, I believe, is to live in this place of peace, in this place of kind of, like, radiant joy, where it's just infectious, where people are like, man, what's, what's going on with you? Because... People suck, and the world's hard. And you're like, yeah, but it's all right. God is good. And even when the snow is falling, and we're thinking, man, I'm going to have to shovel the driveway later, but, like, it is beautiful. It is still beautiful and gorgeous. We can live in that place instead. And so that's salt. To live as salt is to live in this place that's just kind of radically different than everyone else. Radically different, if you want to summarize kind of the saltiness. Now, this light piece. This light piece is to be radically seen. So if to live as light, I mean, to live as salt is to be radically different. To live as light is to be radically seen. And so the first thing about light is that light is seen. Like you turn on a light in the middle of a dark room, bam, it cannot help but be seen. And I think that as Christians, we need to be a people that are seen. We need to stop apologizing. We need to stop tiptoeing around our faith. I mean, I've never met a Jew who apologized for not eating pork while I, in their presence. Like, I might be eating bacon, and they're like, no thanks. Don't do the bacon thing. I'm Jewish. And it's like, oh, duh, yeah. They're like, don't worry about it. I'm Jewish. It's okay. Like, you eat your bacon, and we're good, you know? And, and, you know, so you never see a Jew apologize for, like, being kosher. That just doesn't happen. They're like, I'm just, I just know, I just know my thing. And, And you know that they're Jewish because of that, because of the way that they live their life. They are being seen. Same thing with a Muslim in Ramadan. You offer a Muslim in Ramadan, (laughs) some food, and they're like, no, it's Ramadan, sorry, not eating, get at me when in the sunset, you're like, oh, okay, and maybe if you're loving and kind, you will get after them after sunset, um, depending on when Ramadan is, Um, and so, like, they're not apologizing either, and so, like, we don't have to walk around, and I think the reason is we've seen Christianity go forward with such a bull mentality that we feel like we have to apologize for everyone that's walked around with this bull mentality, but the reality is that we God has called us to love others. God has called us to live as the salt of the world. And like, let's just do that and explain that as we encounter people. I don't think it's that difficult because that's what the other religions are doing. They're not apologizing. I don't think we need to apologize either. If anything, people should just know that we are Christians by the way that we also live their lives. And so, for example, our coworkers, our te- the teachers of our children, kind of the parents at gymnastics or um, dance or like whatever curricular activity that your kid is a part of, like they should know that you're Christians by the way that you serve that thing, by the way you serve the other parents around them, by the way you serve that teacher, by the way you serve your coworker. Like it should be seen. It should be seen and known. And it shouldn't be a secret that like that person over there is a Christian or, you know, like it, it should just be known. It should just be like come bursting out of our life. This is what it is to be light to the world. And this kind of goes with that kind of mentality of like, we don't have to apologize for who we are because we believe that the gospel is compelling, right? If we didn't believe it was compelling, we wouldn't be here. And if it's compelling to you and me, it's probably also compelling to someone else out there as well. It probably has a high level of chance of being compelling to them as well. We just need to begin to formulate and be ready to like share why it's compelling. I think it's as simple as that. Like, be ready for the question, and then share why it's compelling to you. 
personal story is one of the number one ways that we connect with other people. It's also the number one way that we are influenced around opinions and perspectives and life trajectories. And so number one about life is this idea to be seen. The second thing that light does is that light provides us a guide. Light provides, it lights the path. It provides this guide. And so we've been called into the world to be the salt of this pure, preserving, kind of joy, people of peace people. But we've also, with that, comes kind of this responsibility to say that when things are kind of like going morally questionable, to kind of point people towards the right direction. Because if things are kind of moving in a morally questionable way, the inertia of that thing is probably going to be like, well, let's just do it. But if somebody stands up and says, no, the right thing is clearly this thing over here, and you're able to say that compellingly, people are going to be like, you know what? I felt that too, but I just didn't know how to say it. Or I was afraid to go against the inertia that was moving in this direction. If you just stand up and say, hey, guys, we all know that the right thing is over here and in this direction, and that this is for justice and righteousness and peace and for the flourishing of life. People are going to be on board because those things are undeniable. And so we are called to be this guide to move people in that direction instead of the direction that kind of we, we tend to go naturally in and that oftentimes we are silent in and that we kind of like passively participate. And we're like, well, even though I'm a part of this thing, I'm not actually doing this thing. And maybe if I'm just like happy enough, like people will know. No, we have to use words. We have to use words. We have to stand for righteousness and justice if we're going to value life and if we're going to love other people. The third thing that light does is that it warns. Now, I don't know about you, but like I hate warning people. I hate conflict. And if I know anything about you guys, you guys feel the same way about this. But the reality is that we've been called to warn and to kind of address things head on when things are moving in the wrong direction. But the thing is, is that a lot of times when we warn people, we do it from a place of pride. We do it from a place of anger. We do it from a place of irritation or frustration that like things have already started moving down this way. And we're just like, how could you have gotten this far? And we want to warn them with boldness and with a lot of gravitas or, or we, we want to dance around the issue. However we go about it, I feel like we do warning pretty bad. So one of the ways that I think that we can warn people and walk as people of the light is just come alongside them in love with your arm around them and just ask them like, is this the direction that you want to be going in? Are things turning out the way you hoped? I think that if you continue this trajectory, this is where this trajectory ends. Can you see that with me? And a lot of times you'll start to see some heads nod. You're like, what if we changed course? Because I'm afraid that if we continue down this course of where we're going, it's going to end in a place where you don't want to go, where you just don't want to be. And they'll probably be like, yeah, I think you're right. It's to be able to have this vision, this foresight, to be able to come alongside people and know them and care about them so that when you warn them, it's actually from a place of love and not from a place of pride and a place of high self-righteousness where it's like, well, I just know right from wrong and I just know that you're wrong and that I'm right. And if you keep staying wrong, you're just going to miss out on my rightness and like you should be right. But that's how we see it happen most of the time when warning happens. But instead, I want to give us this imagination where we can live as true light and come along beside people. Now, I think one of the reasons why we kind of shy away from living as salt and living as light is, one, we don't like the part of being radically different. 
Or if we do like the part of being radically different, oftentimes we like it for the wrong reasons. We like it for like the self-righteous pat on the back. I'm different. I'm better than you types of reasons. I get it. I'm human. When I'm ever different, that's how I like to be different. Is like, yep, I'm better. Um, I know life better than you. I'm going to do it this way. But the reality is that we've also seen people kind of do this salt and light thing in ways that are incredibly, incredibly destructive. And so we know the people who have been kind of like all salt. They are the people who live radically different lives, and ultimately they live radically different lives that end up being in isolation, and they end up looking weird, and they also end up coming across very offensive to like the general populace. Um, And it's really frustrating, and they're oftentimes very repelling to others. It's almost as if like in the morning when you're making your eggs, like somehow somebody play that evil trick on you in the diner where like the salt cat comes off and you like dump the whole thing on it. It's ruined. Like you try and eat it and you're like, nope, can't. I just can't. You're repulsed from it. There's a time Rebecca and I were making cream corn and we measured out way too much salt. We, we measured out salt in tablespoons instead of teaspoons and we tried to fix it and there was just, there was no fixing that. We, like, had to start over, you know? And so, like, we know people and we know places where there's just way too much salt and it's repulsive. We also know people that are, like, way too much light. Like, like they are people who are radically seen. These people that are way too much light, they're the people that are at football games yelling, repent because you're going to hell, right? I mean, they're, they're radically seen. Like, you know what they're about. <laughs> but at the same time, they're providing a warning but they have no salt in them at all. Like They're not doing it with any type of measurement of grace. And so that's kind of what this all light is. And so it's kind of like when you're driving down the road and somebody has their high beams on and they won't turn it off, like you have to avert your eyes. And you hope that there's a white line that you can put your eyes on or you just kind of like pray through that moment. <laughs> and that's what a person of all light is. I mean, they might have some truth. They might have be communicating a proper warning but nobody can see it. Like, everyone's got to avert their eyes from it. And so we don't want a people that's all salt. We don't want to be people that's all light, but we want to be this people that's this balance of salt and light. And I think that this is where mission is born out of, where mission can begin with us as a people that live in balance of the salt and light perspective. And from there, we're able to see others and sees opportunities when we see other people. And so there's this kind of radical story of this happening in the book of Acts. And so we're going to go to Acts chapter 8 to see this story of how when we're living as salt and light, how we can be radically, how we can be radically looking, at, looking for other people and seizing opportunities. And so it's going to be Acts chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 26. All right. This is what it says. Now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. He rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading from the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. 
Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears was silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About who, I ask, does this prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and began, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said to him, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And we commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water. Philip and the eunuch, he baptized him. And when he came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord, Philip, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. But he went, a while, he went on his way rejoicing. So we have this kind of extreme and radical story of Philip seeing this guy and going towards him and sharing with him the good news and seizing this opportunity with the eunuch, we believe that this eunuch was the guy who then did the same thing in Ethiopia when he got back home and founded the Ethiopian church. We have evidence that the Ethiopian church was founded incredibly early on, and oftentimes the foundation of that church is pointed back to this conversation where Philip took this opportunity and seized it. And so this is the story that we see of how the the disciples operated in relationship to the Holy Spirit shortly after Jesus ascended. They lived very attuned to the Holy Spirit and with eyes wide open towards other people. And so what Philip's doing is that he's sitting there and he feels the Holy Spirit come upon him, says, hey, go talk to this person. Now, this is how we like tell stories, right? It's not really until afterwards that we're able to kind of go back and say, hey, man, the Holy Spirit was super into that. There's a lot of times where we feel this nudge, we feel this movement. We're like, hey, go talk to this person, go have this conversation, maybe go travel to this city. Like we feel the Holy Spirit kind of, kind of move us in a way that we're just like, man, I don't know what that is, but I wouldn't naturally go do that thing. But I hear the Holy Spirit tell me, go do that. So we go and we do it and, and we have success because the Holy Spirit's in it. And then we're able to say later with confidence, the Holy Spirit told me to go do that thing. And so that's what's happening in the story is that he's affirming the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life, that the Holy Spirit is moving in him to see other people. And I believe that the Holy Spirit sees other people all the time, that he's trying to get our attention to see other people all the time, to then take opportunities. And so here we have this Philip guy. He's walking from Jerusalem to Gaza, and he runs up to the man, and he's reading Isaiah. And when he goes up to the man, he asks him, do you understand what you're reading? And the guy responds, he's like, I need a guide. He's saying, I need somebody to throw some light on this passage, right? Like, I need somebody to guide me in this. And so from here, he's invited into the chariot, and he tells him the good news of Jesus, and he is baptized. I mean, this is salt and light in action. And I believe that this is kind of in some form of way, the ways that we are also called to work in relationships, is that we're, we're called to start seeing other people and hear the Holy Spirit move us to go talk to them. And maybe we're not going to tell them the gospel right away. Maybe they're in a place where they're in crisis. Maybe they're in a place where they're going to be like, you know what, I've got this thing going on in my life and I don't know what to do about it. You know what they're asking for? They're like, I need a guide. I need a guide. I need somebody to show me the way. And we can take 
the wisdom from the Holy Scriptures and like apply it to their circumstance. And we can guide them towards truth and towards life and towards light and love them well in the middle of their crisis and we can seize those opportunities. And so the reality is that I believe that the salt and light thing, we're called to live everywhere, everywhere that we are to begin seeing other people. And so <laughs> when we think about the relationships, when we think about the relationships that God has planted us in, we have coworkers, we have the barista. Maybe you get a coffee every day, so you have like the same like group of baristas every day that you encounter. Um, maybe there are people, um, you know, if you take any type of busing, maybe it's the same people on the bus every day. If maybe it's you have a coworker, maybe you um, go to the gym, and so you you go to the gym at the same time. And there's other people at the gym at the same time. Maybe you walk in your neighborhood. I mean, I'm just trying to open our eyes to where we can start seeing people, right? Because there's people around us all the time. And we kind of get tunnel vision and we start saying, I've got this, this, and this, and I just need to like get through my day. And we miss all the people that are around us all the time. But God has given us a context to every relationship that we're in, even if it's just the same person that you run into while you're walking your dog. Rebecca and I do this all the time. We run into people, we're walking our dog through our neighborhood, and they want to pet our dog. That's the context of that relationship. It's like, it's Selah, and they just want to pet our dog. Now, what we need to do is start taking bank of like, all right, how many times do I see this person walking? How many times do they want to stop and see Selah? Maybe the next time we see them, we, we take Selah to them and say, hey, you want to pet our dog again? You loved it last time. Maybe we start seeing that, oh, they're walking at the same time that we're walking. And we can grow the context of that relationship one more time, and we can invite them say, hey, can we finish our walk with you? You know, now we're walking and talking together. It's just, we took the context that was Selah and opened that relationship, the context of that relationship, one click. Maybe you have a coworker and you just spend all of your time in the office with your coworker and all that you know about your coworker is that you guys work together and maybe you guys get lunch together because you're working together in the same office all the time. But what would it look like for you to take and just like, does that coworker have a significant other? Do they have a spouse? Do you have a spouse? Do you know their spouse, whether you have a spouse or not? Maybe you could invite them over for dinner. Be like, hey, come on over for dinner. We're going to hang out. Boom. You just open that, the context of that relationship one more click because you were now office mates and now you're eating dinner together. You're now inside each other's home. Same thing with the moms that you meet with, whether it's whatever lesson or group that you're a part of, like, how, maybe, maybe their kid needs a ride. Maybe their kid lives in the same neighborhood or like a mile away from you and it would actually really bless that mom or that dad if you could like pick their kid up and take them there. But you don't know because you haven't talked to them. You don't know because you haven't found out what their rhythms are. But if we just broke these barriers, if we just said, hey, the context of my relationship is whatever class thing that we're gathering towards, if we could open that up one click and say, hey, I could actually give your kid a ride. Now, now the context is open a little bit bigger. Now you start to find out what are some other things that we as families do that are similar at the same time. And you say, hey, can we, can we do this thing that we do to, independently? Can we start doing that together? And we open that relationship one more click. And so the idea is how can we expand the context of the relationships that we're in? Maybe the barista that you see every day, do you know their name? Have you asked them for their name? Have you seen them as a person? I've been talking to some baristas 
and I've been starting to get to know their names, and they're like, it's so refreshing that you asked us what our names are. They're like, we just feel like kind of like machine servants. Like people just ask us their order, and they're very specific and kind of demanding about their order, and they're like, and we just have to make it, and then we, then we get the complaints when we did it wrong. They're like, it's so refreshing that you're just like, hey, what's your name? How are you doing? You're like, that you see us as a person. I was like, oh, I'm really glad. I'm really glad that, that I can do that for you. I'm really glad that you can be seen. I'm sorry that you're not seen that way. And that's one of the ways that we can be a blessing. And we just open that relationship one click from just seeing this barista as someone that serves this function, that serves our needs of getting us our caffeine on time in the right way. We just take a time to like care for them. And this is the beginning of loving other people. It's just about having eyes to see them and then taking those moments to seize those opportunities to, to open that relationship one more click. Now, I don't know when I'm going to invite my barista over to my house and have dinner. Maybe that's not the next step of context formation. But do you guys get the idea? Do you get the picture that the Ethiopian eunuch does like, and obviously that doesn't really happen that much in our life, but I believe it can. And I believe that the Holy Spirit wants to do those things. But I also believe that he is also just moving us to be faithful and seeing other people and seizing opportunities to love others by growing the context of those relationships and doing more in community than what we're doing in isolation. I think this is what it is to love people. This is what it is to start living as people that are salt and light to our world. And I believe that this is what it is to grow as the kingdom and the body of Christ where God has planted us. God has planted us all specifically and strategically within relationships for us to go forth and bring life and joy and, and be a guide and to be this salt and to be this thing that, that gives life to those relationships wherever we are. And so we're his ambassadors. We're his ambassadors, and we're called to go. And I believe that if we're going to be a church that values life, we also have to be a church that loves other people, that we have to take Penn's advice seriously, that eventually, at some point, we're going to have to start tackling some people with the love of Christ and leave the outcome up to God. All right, so let's pray. Have the worship team come out. We'll take some time in communion where we are thankful that God tackled us with his grace and his love and his mercy, and he nailed it to a cross, making our sins a public spectacle so that we can walk in freedom, that we can walk in grace, that we can walk in truth, and that we've been empowered by his spirit to be this guide and this salt and this light uh, to our neighbors and to the rest of the world. This is the game plan, all right? Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time that we have together. We thank you that you are good. And God, we thank you for the boldness of Philip. We thank you that he had eyes to see and that he was filled with your spirit and that he radically was obedient to you and moved in power and authority and that the Ethiopian eunuch knew you and was able to, to emulate that where he went next, back home, God. God, I pray that you would do that within us here that we would take this story, that we would see this here in Scripture, and that you would emulate that in our lives here in Verona, that you would emulate that in our lives in whatever family groups that we're a part of, whatever relationships that we're a part of, that we would see ourselves as people that love others, that see people as people, not just as people that function for our benefits, but that we would serve others for their benefit, God, that we would reverse the roles, that we would start seeing other people as humans that desperately need to be loved and embraced and cared about. God, give us your heart. Give us your eyes. 
And God, may you provide opportunities to speak your hope and your peace and your truth with grace this week. In your name we pray. Amen.